0: Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. We will be starting a new season of Jury Duty on February 28th with our examination of the Kenosha, Wisconsin murder trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. You can find a trailer for that new season in our feed. However, before we start Jury Duty Season 4, we are revisiting the trial of Robert Durst, which we covered in Seasons 1 and 2 of this podcast. Jury Duty has secured exclusive interviews with two of the jurors, Carmen Kliteka and John Okanishi, who were part of the Los Angeles panel that convicted Robert Durst of the murder of his good friend, Susan Berman. In our last episode, we heard Carmen and John recall the early portion of Robert Durst's marathon 14-day residence on the witness stand. In this episode, they offer their memories of the rest of Dick DeGuerin's questioning of Robert Durst. One quick note about this episode. Because I had the opportunity to discuss Durst's direct testimony in greater depth with Carmen than I did with John, my conversation with her makes up the bulk of this episode. At the end of the episode, we will relive some of the key moments that each of these jurors mention by playing excerpts of the trial audio that they reference. That's all coming up right after the break.
1: Hold up.
0: We begin today's excerpts from my conversation with juror number 12 and jury person Carmen Kleteka by asking her about her memory of the conclusion of Robert Durst's direct testimony under the questioning of his attorney, Dick DeGarren. Towards the end of Robert Durst's second day of direct testimony, he moves on to describe the events surrounding his going to see Susan Berman around the holiday period of 2000. And he talks about spending time with his friend, Diane Boucher, up in Northern California, that he took out $9,000 from the bank to buy marijuana from a friend in Garberville. And then he decides to drive down to Southern California rather than fly. Would you tell us what you remember of that?
2: So that was all so weird, all those things.
0: Tell me your response to all that stuff.
2: Well, first of all, let's do one at a time. So let's just start with that story of, He's going to fly across the country to care for a friend with some sort of a female medical condition that requires surgery. I mean, that in itself is not believable. They could have at least come up with a different story. So later, when the prosecution asked him about that, they showed that there were no records of his friend having had surgery at that hospital. So to me, that was not surprising. Okay, so that's the first part. And then the next part about him like driving down and the 9,000 dollars and stopping by at a friend's house in you know, Danny Cunningham, also a person who like, doesn't exist. And it was comical, like watching him sit in front of me, coming up with these stories. Just like he had an answer for everything. His friend was off the grid and his friend didn't have an address. And he had an explanation for everything. And yeah, the weed farm and no electricity. That was just so (laughs) weird. I don't know that anyone on the jury believed that. Um, I certainly didn't.
0: The last part of day three of Bob on the Stand was when just before he arrived at Susan's house, he decided to stay over in Bakersfield because he had a migraine. Do you remember the end of that day, you know, which basically ended with him driving up Benedict Canyon and towards Susan's house?
2: I I thought the only part of the story that was believable was the, the migraine and that he stayed in Bakersfield, and that was the reason why. I think that's certainly, that's plausible and believable, and I thought that was okay. I'll have to give them credit for that one.
0: And looking back on it, do you think the Bakersfield story was true, or do you think he drove straight through and got to her house at night and killed her at night?
2: On the 22nd?
0: Yes, on the 22nd.
2: No, I think he, he was there on the night of the 22nd. But I, I like the story of the migraine. I think it was the only part of the three stories that they gave that could have been plausible, that was plausible, and that could have been believable.
0: The next day, Bob starts to talk about discovering Susan's body. Uh, tell me your memory of Bob's testimony about discovering Susan's body.
2: His uh, description of the events lacked any emotion it was so weird and then uh he said that he went to check the body and he never said you know what was weird is that he kept he kept saying the body he said he that when he entered that he saw the body there he never said when i entered my friend susan's house i couldn't find her and then i saw her on the floor and i went to see if she was okay he never said anything like that. He just referred to her as the body the whole time. Which to me tells me that he I mean, he knew that she was dead. That's just not the the process you go through when you find someone. You find a person and you check on them to see if, if they're okay. And then later you find out that they're dead. He never he never talked about her as you know, Susan was she wasn't there and or Susan was what was on the floor and she felt cold or she I couldn't wake her up or he never said anything like that. It, that's what I would expect to hear if, it, if he truly had just found her. He described her more as a, a matter of fact. He couldn't find Susan and then he saw the body and then he walked over to the body and put his hand over her face and then felt her cold breath which was really weird.
0: Do you remember thinking that? What is he talking about?
2: Yeah. So I just thought within myself, you know, he's he's really stressed right now, trying to come up with something, and he's getting himself all mixed up.
0: What about his story about the sign on the door and the sign disappearing and going around the back of the house and out front and seeing a car pull away?
2: I think that goes along with everything else, like his nonsensical stories. And trying to create doubt, trying to create a possibility that maybe, you know, there's some other guy out there that did it. We should shift our focus and look for that other guy.
0: By the way, sort of random question, because he had a very specific response to Susan's dogs. He said he didn't like Susan's dogs. Do you think Bob Durst killed his dog, Igor?
2: I I don't think he did. No. I think he probably liked big, large, calm dogs. Susan's dogs were described by a lot of people as as being like really hyperactive and loud and a little bit obnoxious. And I think that that probably didn't resonate well with him. And I think you probably opened the doors so he can do what he was going to finish doing what he was doing without having to hear the dogs.
0: What did you make of his story about writing the cadaver note and the decision to write the cadaver note and his thought initially to make a phone call and then deciding not to make a phone call? And then why do you think he wrote the cadaver note?
2: I think this goes back to him like being friends with Susan and, and loving her as a friend. But he also had to protect himself because I think she was probably the one person that he had confessed to. and as Nick Shaven had said in his testimony and, and i believe him and think he was trying to tie up a, a loose end and in self-preservation i think he killed her to protect himself and i think he i think he felt badly about that and t- i think it was in an effort to make himself feel better cuz so i think everything was about him everything that he did was for Bob Durst and that was for him. I'm not so sure he did it because he's his religion or her religion and, you know, follow some sort of guidelines. I think it was just that. And like other things that Bob Durst did, it wasn't well thought out and he didn't stop to think about what consequences might come from that. And so he drafted the note and sent it off.
0: Was there anything else about the direct examination and Durst's testimony that you remember that you want to talk about?
2: Maybe we can talk about how Dick DeGarren was uh, talking about the the victims. You know, he would always describe his neighbor. He always used the word cantankerous, which I thought was just so manipulative. I I would cringe every time I'd hear him say that. Like, what what does he think he's trying to do? Like if she says it enough times we're we're gonna eventually say, Well yeah, he he deserved to be killed.
0: Oh yeah. So yeah, Morris Black. There was a moment that John Lewin would later pick up on, but I wondered if you picked up on it before the cross examination. When DeGuerrin asks Durst whether Morris Black knew that Durst was Bob Durst. And Durst said he knew that for a long time. And then Durst said, I told him I sometimes wore a disguise as a woman because I didn't want to be me. And he said he went through that a while ago. And then DeGarren asked, did you explain to him why you didn't want to be Bob Durst? And he said, primarily because of Janine Pirro. When Durst said that, do you remember thinking he told Morris Black about Janine Pirro? Mm -hmm. Do you remember thinking that in the moment, or was it only when really?
2: Yes. At that moment, I thought there's there's the motive.
0: So you picked that up in the moment and not when John Lewin brought it up on Mm cross-examination.
2: And I remember being really glad to hear John Lewin bring it up.
0: Do you remember anything about Durst's testimony about his relationship with Nick Chavin and whether he told Nick Chavin it was her or me?
2: Yeah, I thought that was really weird the way they did that. So when Daguerrean brought that up, so I mean, they brought it up because they had to. They had to address it. But if you recall, when they were talking about that meeting they had at the restaurant, they were trying to shift the focus on a bunch of other details like the credit card and the menu and like stuff that didn't matter and it was so obvious to me that it was like a tactic to manipulate us and uh, shift our attention but you know at this point I was well used to those tactics from the defense that I mean it was just one more and I don't know I thought it was kind of pathetic
0: All right, the questioning of Durst by DeGarren about Andrew Jarecki and the interviews and why he gave those answers, starting with Durst's testimony that he was using crystal meth and then going on to the way that Jarecki manipulated Durst into certain answers. Tell me about your response to hearing that part of the interrogation.
2: So I thought it was another manipulation tactic, you know, telling us that, oh, it was uh, Jarecki told me to say that. <laughs> like, it just was so ridiculous. First of all, it didn't make sense to me that he he went to to Jarecki because he wanted a movie to be made about him so that he can show everyone that he's uh, really a nice guy and everyone would change their perception about him. However, when that movie came out, it Did not show him in very good light. And he was thrilled about it. I thought it was so bizarre that his only complaint about that movie was that he was portrayed as having killed his dog. And I think that's one of the things about Bob Durst is that he was exceptionally honest at times. (laughs) And it was surprising because some of the times when he was honest I would have expected him to not be and you know like when directly showed him the scene of the Christmas party where Ryan Gosling and Kirsten Dunst he pulled her out of her mother's house by the hair the expression on his face was just very matter of fact it was just so weird to see that and I thought it was genuine I thought he was just you know, being himself. So when he was on the stand and now years later, he's claiming that he just said that because Durek told him to. I don't buy that for a second.
0: And then his answers to DeGarren's questions about the bathroom audio, about there it is, you're caught, and about kill them all, of course. What did you make of that?
2: I thought that was a good try. That was a very good try. They're going to think I killed them all, of course. There's only one problem with that, is that there's no they're going to think I'm on that audio. And the raw footage was played for us. It was played at full volume. And the only thing we heard right before Killed Them All was complete silence.
3: Wow.
0: We now return to my interview with juror number two, John Okanishi, and hear his memories of Robert Durst's last two days of direct testimony. There are two aspects of Robert Durst's direct examination by Dick DeGuerin that I want to focus on. Number one, Durst's testimony to DeGuerin about his drive down from Northern California to see Susan Berman and what he experienced when he got there. And number two was his account to DeGuerin of what he meant on the bathroom audio when he was caught muttering those words like, there it is, you're caught or killed them all, of course. What were you thinking when you heard those answers?
4: One of the most, you know, incriminating pieces of evidence is what was recorded during uh, the jinx. We had learned that what was actually, you know, shown on the documentary was all edited. So as it appeared in the documentary, that wasn't so much presented to us as the, you know, the unedited, you know, audio recordings. And Durst's explanation is that, oh, you know, before saying, you know, killed them all. He actually said he was actually thinking or saying they'll think I killed them all. That was his that was his uh, explanation for for that. But then that audio clip, you know, killed them all. Of course, they played that at full volume multiple times. You know, it was always prefaced, You know, he he was in the bathroom, right? So obviously, um, you know the uh, the 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 restroom sounds were being played at you know full blast along with his quotes, which uh, was pretty, pretty crazy to hear it that many times played that loudly. You know, we didn't hear it. These words that he said were obviously not there. He just made it up like he made it up a lot of things. He just made it up as he went along. So the, his explanation for that's not really the quote had no credibility for us.
0: We are now going to relive some of the impactful moments mentioned by Carmen and John in their reflections on the latter portion of Robert Durst's direct examination testimony as questioned by Dick DeGarren. We begin with his trip from Northern California to Los Angeles on the days around Susan Berman's murder.
5: So you stayed with Diane Boucher that night. That was the 19th? Correct. And then what did you do?
3: Well, we got up early in the morning to Humboldt County Hospital and left her there. I then went to Bank of America and withdrew $9,000 so that I would have cash to buy marijuana from my friend in Barbersville.
5: Why not just fly from San Francisco to
3: LA? Well, we intended to drive from Los Angeles up to Big Sur. I thought about flying and renting a car I decided not to. Okay.
5: On the drive from San Francisco toward Los Angeles on Highway 5, tell us what happened.
3: I got through close to Bakersfield, I started getting the symptoms of my migraine headache. And one of the things that the doctor had prescribed for me, called a purpose scent, that once I took a pill, I should lie down and do nothing.
5: And you called Susan from the room?
3: Yes. So I heard the phone and the answering machine picked up. And I said, Susie, Susie, it's Bobby. Pick up the phone.
5: Did she pick up the phone? Yeah. What did you tell her?
3: She said, Bobby, are you here? And I said, no, I'm having one of my episodes. I have to stop. I'm in Bakersfield. She says, poor Bobby, do you want me to come get you? And I said, no. I should be mostly better by in the morning.
0: We pick up DeGarren's questioning of Durst as Durst arrives by car at Susan Berman's house.
5: As you got there, what did you first see?
3: When I got to it in 20, 30, the front door, I could see that there was a piece of paper attached to the front door. It said, Bobby, I am doing my walk. Be back in an hour. Susie.
5: And what did you think?
3: I thought, well, she could have left an hour ago, meaning she'd be back real soon, or maybe even she already got back. But also, she could have left five minutes ago, meaning I'd have to wait an hour.
5: So what did you next do?
3: I rang, rang the bell, knocked a bunch.
5: What could you see without opening the door?
3: Well, straight ahead were the two bedrooms. To the right was the kitchen, and out the back of the kitchen was the back door, which was wide open. She had decided that she didn't want me to have to wait. She was doing something, so she had overnighted me keys to the front door.
5: So did you have a key to her front door? Two keys. What did you do?
3: Well, after ringing the bell, and knocking for five, I unlocked the front door, walked in, and as soon as I got in, I could see the dogs. I don't remember if I saw all three of them or if it was just two of them.
5: Where were the dogs?
3: In the livings.
5: And what did you do next?
3: I decided I would see what could, why the back door was open.
5: So did you walk out into the backyard through the kitchen door? Yeah. And then what, what happened?
3: Well, I walked as far as you could walk before the canyon wall stopped me from walking. When I turned around, I walked to the front of the house.
5: Now, to clarify, you said you walked around to the front. Did you go through the house or on the passageway that was at the north uh, side of the
3: house? I walked on the pathway. And then I walked back toward the front door. When I got to about 20, 30 feet, From the front door, I saw that the front door was open and the piece of paper that had been attached to it was gone. I walked into the house, followed Susan a few times, figured she must be she's still on her walk or she's in one of the bedrooms. I walked down from the front door to the bedrooms. Soon as I got in front of the first bed, I did a double take. I saw Susan. I saw Susan lying on the floor with her feet on the back, with her feet towards the ground.
5: Could you see uh, whether she was awake or alive, or could you see what did you see?
3: She was just lying there.
5: So what did you do?
3: I shouted, soon a come in time, and I quickly ran to the bedroom where she was. Her eyes were closed. I squatted over her, reached down, grabbed her by her upper arms, and lifted her up.
5: Now, how high did you lift her?
3: Six inches.
5: Was she cold to the touch? Was she warm to the touch? Could you tell?
3: I put my hand all over her face. I might have left her alone. To see if she was breathing see if i could feel breath and it felt cold then i grabbed her by her arms and lifted her up her head just hung down and i could see that her hand was in some kind of lip.
5: what 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 was going through your mind what did you think
3: i was going through my mind that she had fallen backward. she had fainted or something Fallen down in her head i also thought Maybe somebody hit her in the back of the house. I did not imagine time she had been shot.
5: So what, what did you next observe?
3: I wanted to go check the bathroom. I, took bed. I wanted to check the other bed. Somebody had done this to you. Maybe he was still here. I wanted to call 911. one. That is what I
5: think. Let me stop you. Before you get there, did you see what the liquid was that her head was in?
3: but it was blood.
5: When you lifted her by her arms and her head fell back, was this was her body stiff or not?
3: Not that I'm aware of. I decided the first thing I should is call nine one one. I tried the telephone, but it was dead. Then I took the electric cord. I was just about to plug it in when I heard voice.
5: You heard voices? Yeah. Where did you hear the voices coming from?
3: I looked up. I could see through the corner window. There were people, half of people walking past Susan's house, Sal. When I first thought, I don't want those people to see me here. Why not? Because someone had done it. By then I started, someone must have done two Susan. What caused her to die?
5: So what did you do?
3: I waited ten, fifteen seconds till the people walked south, and I walked out the front door, shutting it behind me, got in my car to the U-turn. Went south from down the canyon, begging I would go to the Payroll. room, dialed my lady's voice, asked for my name. I decided I did not want to give them my name. I was thinking of giving them a phony name. You know, the way that my voice is very recognizable. Even without a name, they mean for me doing the report. So I decided instead of calling 911, I would send the police a letter telling them that Susan was dead in her
0: Next, we have the moment when Robert Durst acknowledges that Morris Black knew exactly why Durst was in hiding. Morris Black knew that you were Bob Durst.
3: He had known I was Bob Durst for a long time.
0: When
5: was the first time he saw you as Bob Durst and not as Dorothy Siner with Sometime the first
3: time in March or April.
5: All right. Did he make any remarks about
3: that? I told him I sometimes... Warner despised your woman because I just did not want to be me. And he said he went through that a while ago.
5: In other words, not wanting to be you, not wanting to be Bob Durst. Did you explain to him why you didn't
0: want to be Bob Durst?
3: Primarily with a Janine Pierre.
0: Later in the questioning, DeGuerin elicits Durst's reflections on his interview with Andrew Jarecki.
5: What motivated you to contact Mr. Jarecki in the first place?
3: I needed to be rejected everywhere.
5: So what did you want to do about it?
3: I had this idea that if I could get my correct story out there, then I would be acceptable everywhere.
5: Were you using any drugs during those interviews? Yeah. What were you using?
3: Chris' crystal meth.
5: What effect does that have on you? Or well, what did it have on you?
3: It speeds you up.
5: What was your hope that Mr. Jarecki would do with the interviews?
3: I was expecting him to come up with a show that he would find one of the interview programs to carry.
5: Were you expecting the interviews to be favorable to you? Yes. You know now that was a mistake, don't you?
3: That was a very, very, very big mistake.
5: Toward the end of the second round of interviews, Mr. Jarecki confronts you with two envelopes addressed to Susan Berman and with the cadaver note. you recall that? Yes. He asked you whether you wrote the cadaver note, and you said no. you recall that? Yes. When that happened, did you realize um, that it was pretty obvious that the handwriting was the same? Yes. At one point, you say something to the effect, there it is, you're caught. You say that to yourself. You say it out loud. First, have you spoken out loud to yourself?
3: I've been talking to myself since I was a little boy.
5: Do you realize that you're doing it?
3: Usually I realize I'm doing it, but there are times when I don't realize I'm doing it. It seems I talk to myself about my thoughts, so some of what I'm thinking, I do not state out loud.
5: When you said, there it is, you're caught, what did you mean?
3: I was talking about being caught riding the cadaver. Though.
5: Even though you had denied it for years? Yeah. Later, uh, in the recording of your talking to yourself, you also said kill them all, of course. Yeah. What did you mean by that?
3: What I did not say out loud or perhaps said very softly is they'll all think I killed them all course.
0: That concludes this bonus episode of Jury Duty. Join us on our next episode as we hear from Carmen and John about their memories of the beginning of Prosecutor John Lewin's cross-examination of Robert Durst.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.
0: You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Terracon. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.